Hi, I'm Alan Alcorn, creator. Ah, nah, nah, nah. I'll try it again. Hi, I'm Al Alcorn, creator of Atari's Pong, and you're listening to the Ted Dabney Experience Podcast. Welcome to the show. I'm Richard May, and I'm here as ever with Retro Gamer Magazine's Paul Drury. Hello. And the author of Missile Commander, a journey to the top of an arcade classic, Tony Temple. Hello. For this episode, we speak with none other than Alan Alcorn, Atari employee number three after Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney, and the engineer of Pong, one of the very first video arcade games. It's now over half a century since Pong was released, and the Atari brand name swiftly became synonymous with video gaming. So it was a genuine honour to speak with Al. I'd wager that even the most dedicated video game historians will glean a thing or two during the next few hours. Of particular note were some poignant anecdotes about both Nolan Bushnell and Steve Jobs. As ever, thank you for listening. You can find all the usual social media links at tdepodcast.net, and if you're feeling so inclined, can support the podcast via Kofi. The URL for that is ko-fi.com forward slash TDE podcast. Hi, I'm Gary Vincent. The Ted Dabney Experience podcast is brought to you in association with ACAM, the American Classic Arcade Museum. Visit classicarcademuseum.org to learn more about our collection and visit us in Laconia, New Hampshire. Al, thank you so much for joining us on the, the podcast. And, and we're going to start by transporting you back to September 1972 and the, the day that you installed the very first Pong machine in Andy Capp's Tavern in Sunnyvale, California. So let's get some basics. Was it just you carrying this machine or, or was Nolan Bushnell with you? No, it, it was Nolan. Me and Nolan uh, uh, did it. Yeah, both of us. I mean, one guy couldn't pick it up. So it was two people. <laughs> And it was after work. I mean, this wasn't a very serious... You have to understand, this wasn't like, oh, wow, we're going to get rich from this thing. It was like <laughs> this prototype that was going to be thrown away. You know, Nolan lied to me, and I made it... Try to make it as fun to play as possible with speed up you and did. that yeah, sort of yeah, stuff, yeah. score. And uh, so we put it out there and just to see if anybody would play it, because there was nothing like it. You know, all the other games are very complicated... Uh, uh, and, uh, that, that's, that's what happened. Yeah. Uh, let's give us some context, uh, some context here because Andy Capps Tavern was on, when I say your, I mean, kind of Atari or, or Syzygy, kind of on your arcade route. Uh, is that right? I mean, you, you knew you weren't just wandering into any old bar is what I'm saying. Right. Well, what happened, Nolan and Ted, uh, it worked for Nutting Associates and, and they, they made royalties off of, off of uh, computer space. Mm -hmm. And with that, they invested in uh, in arcade machines, you know, pinball machines, basically, and a few driving games. And we had, and they had a route, which frankly supplied 
much of the cash flow for the early uh, Atari <laughs> Syzygy efforts. Uh, okay. I remember there were times we'd go out to a, a, a restaurant or a, a location uh, to have lunch, and we'd collect the coins from the machine, split the take with the op with the thing, and and. Uh, Buy ourselves lunch with quarters. <laughs> okay. It sounds very much, yeah, a nickel and dime business, almost literally. Um, let's get more context then. So when you bring the Pong machine in, other machines that you, uh, that you were running were in there. Can I just check? Was there a computer space there as well? I uh, do not believe there was. No, I do not believe there was a computer space. There were basically pinball machines i see i see so you you put this machine and and like say if it's a video game then you know it's noticeably different from the pinball and, and mechanical driving games you've got there yeah the legend and i stress that word the legend goes that immediately there's a crowd round people putting coins uh, loving this <laughs> game it, it, you know it, it breaks down because everyone's played it too much i, I don't think that's actually what happened al you were there what actually happened on that night the stories keep getting better and better <laughs> uh yeah yeah uh no it uh uh if you've seen pictures of that first prototype it's it, there are pictures of that at the computer history museum uh, you know, it was a tabletop thing. It was just a yeah. box that was put together very quickly. And we set it on a barrel. There happened to be a barrel there. And we set it up on that barrel and uh, plugged it in. And uh, we bought, Nolan and I uh, each bought a beer. We sat back and we watched to see if anybody would play it. You know, it was, you understand today the expectation, oh, it's a great, no, it was, it was supposed to be a throwaway, but we figured shit since we got it in a place, let's see if it's any good. Okay. Well, I mean, does anyone play it that night? Yeah. A couple of guys came up to play it, uh, after, yeah, after about you know, 10 or 15 minutes because it's something new. Uh, yeah. I mean, all, and, and I remember it had instructions on it, but no one ever reads the instructions and mm -hmm. they played the game. And I uh, remember Nolan asking one of the guys afterwards saying, uh, uh, what do you think? And, uh, they said, yeah, it was kind of fun, but yeah, we know the guys that made that thing. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so, so Nolan didn't say that he'd put the machine in there. He just nonchalantly no. said, what, what do you so, think of that game? And wow. uh, they, they came out with this bullshit that they know the games. And I basically said, save it for the ladies, you know. <laughs> so, uh, so did you, this is brilliant. So there's two, who are these guys? They're just they pretending. Some, is some this a standard thing? So they were bullshitting, saying that, yeah, 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 yeah. This is a new thing. We we know. We know the guys. Are, yep. Yep. <laughs> just so amazing. that sounded good. Okay. You know, fine, fine, fine. So you know, we had a route and we'd go collect. The machines, you know, every every few days, we actually had, we actually had a guys that would do it. Uh, Ted Dabney's brother did it for a while, and okay. you know, it's a the typical coin op route. Okay, so that so that night, these guys play it. You finish your beer, you hear them bullshitting. You just then wander home and don't yep. really think anything more of it. That's right, until we get a call from the owner. Yeah. Ah, now this is interesting. The owner, I believe, is Bill Gattis. Is that That's right? That's correct. Is he yes. the okay. Yes. So again, I don't want to get sort of you know pedantic about this, but he did not ring you later that night, did he? Oh is, no. Is this considerably no. later? Yeah, it was maybe three or four days later. It may have even been after the after a collection. But it, it probably took a week or two to really, well, to, to crap out because it was being played right. too much. 
Yeah. Okay. So this, so the actual, the legend that it did break down because too many coins were in the coin box is true. It's just that that, that happened over a, a week or so. Yeah. Yeah. When you opened that door and did see the coin box overflowing. Yeah. I mean, at that point, did you go, ah, maybe we, we have got something here. It's an interesting question. At that point, at that point, I was relieved because I'd found out what was wrong with the game and I didn't have to go in and fix it. You know what I mean? It's like I could fix it by just stuffing the coins in my pocket. That was a good, good way to do it. Uh, you know, so uh, no one was more interested. The next day when I brought the sack of quarters in and I told Owen, I dumped him on his desk and I said, I, I, I found the problem. The goddamn thing's making too much money. I mean, and that's great. He goes, do you know, do you know, mm. yeah, I can imagine him sort of scratching his chin thinking we're onto something here. Um, again, I, I love minutiae is that I know it wasn't a big coin box <laughs> because it was a prototype machine, but how much money do you think was in that, that bag that you dramatically dropped down on his desk? Oh, well, it was half of what was ever the thing had made. It was probably 50 or $60 worth of quarters. So that's 240 yeah, It was a very small. Of... Remember, if you take, take a look at the picture of the original or prototype, yeah. it's got a coin Mac bolted to the side of it, you know, from like a kiddie ride, one of those kind of things. Yeah, so it's yeah, got yeah. a pretty small, you know, fairly small coin box. After that, the production versions we made, we had a bread mm. pan in there that would yeah. hold, you know, <laughs> a ton of quarters. That was but a even, problem. Yeah. Even th- now, look, you, you've mentioned Nolan there, so let's 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 go back here. So tell us then, where did you first meet Nolan Bushnell? Oh, I, I, I first met Nolan at Ampex, Ampex okay. Video File. We were both working there. Uh, were you? Did you have the same role? I mean, were you both about the same level, or was no, he your no, superior? No no, 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 no. I was a. I was the first time I met Nolan. I was a a, a, a junior in college. I had uh, gone to the work study program where you would work for six months in industry and then go to school for six months, and uh, that way, you know, I thought I could earn enough money because I was working my way through college. I could earn enough money to pay for college when I got, you know, save the money. Of course, mm-hmm. I pissed away the money as fast as I made it. But uh, <laughs> hey, it was the sixties. Yeah, right. and, and but... so so Nolan Nolan was hired as a full blown engineer, and okay. he was in a different. He was in my area, but working for a different manager. And uh, but you know everybody was close together, and. Yeah. He, I, he, may uh, I ask then, you sure. first impressions of, of, of Nolan? I know you, you know, obviously became great friends, but I just wondered what you made of him when you first saw him at Ampex. Well, I, he was very outgoing. He has quite a, quite a, a vivid personality, you know, and so, uh, uh, he was, he, he would, he didn't infect me, but, but there were, uh, other engineers, he put together a club to do investing. This was back in the seventies. Oh. You know, normal people couldn't buy stocks. It was for rich people and right. you had to have an, so he got a group of enough engineers together. They could pool their money and buy some stock or something. So he was already very entrepreneurial at, at that point. That's, that is interesting. It wasn't yeah, and this I, interesting. And I was just, yeah. and I was a work study student, you know, the, the lowest rung, on the pole <laughs> in engineering, you know, and I was okay, going to leave how, in six months. How how modest. Well, we've mentioned Nolan there. Now, given the, the title of our podcast, please can we ask about Ted Dabney? Did you know Ted from, was he also at Ampex? Yeah, Ted, this is how that happened. Nolan Nolan's office 
was a small office that he shared with Ted Dabney. He was paired with, even though oh. Ted wasn't on the same project, but they, they shared it. And Ted was a non-degreed engineer, but had a great deal of experience in analog engineering. Right. And okay. and also provided, and, and Nolan shared, I believe Nolan shared with Ted his dream of, of basically of video games, you mm-hmm. know, and he thought he could make the space war game, uh, getting a little oh, technical yeah. here, a raster yeah. scan version when it would play on a regular television. Right. If he could do that, uh, that would be a big success because he enjoyed playing computer space. And that was his idea. And that was really the only video game that he'd ever seen. And it played yeah. on a PDP-1. And he thought he was going to replicate that with a lower cost uh, mini computer, which of course. that didn't and, work out. No, but that's interesting that he recognized that Ted had experience, knowledge in, in analog, which of course, you you know, you'd need that to use a conventional television there. Is that he's, Ted seems very different to Nolan. Would, yeah. would you agree? Okay, so yeah, how would you yeah, characterize? But I, I think what Ted, what Ted did, you know, remember, Nolan was fresh out of uh, University of Utah. And yeah. Ted was an old hand. He'd been in the military. You know, he was a, a, a very experienced guy in, in all kinds of stuff. So having somebody with, who grew up in the area and the whole thing would help him. You know, I, I think he was just, a partner in getting right. this thing set up. And there were all kinds of things that had to be done. But right. Nolan did all the digital design work on computer space. Of course, of course. They do seem to make an unlikely couple. Were you surprised that they ended up, I mean, I think technically leaving Ampex to do this project? Were you slightly surprised? Did you imagine those two would go off and do something together? Well, I, I didn't imagine anybody leaving a job. I and mean, that's back in the day <laughs> when when you had a job at a big company like Ampex, that was a career, you know, you you yeah. stayed there your whole life. You got a hearty handshake and a gold watch when you retired, you know, and that was the whole yeah. deal. And for having two guys, it, they were starting companies wasn't that popular a thing to do back in 1972. So <laughs> they took a lot of courage. We thought it was foolish. In fact, in fact, you know, he was advised against it. that This is, you know, throwing away a, a great career. Uh, you know, but they, no, no, we're going to do it. And, uh, so he did, he went over and cut a deal with, uh, Nutting Associates. Okay. Now I'm going to get back to your story in a moment, but of course, Ted has passed away. Otherwise we definitely would have invited him on this show. I did have the pleasure of talking to him many years ago about the making of computer space. You knew the man well. How crucial would you say his role was in those very early days? I'm talking 71 and 72. How important do you think he was to to the pioneering work? Well, uh, I think he was very important at getting the company set up. Mm-hmm. He was uh, and 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 creating an interface to the television set, the analog mm-hmm. part of it, and, and getting that all worked out. Uh, uh, but I, I think the most important thing was just as a partner, because it was just Syzygy was a partnership with Ted and Nolan mm-hmm. and. Uh, uh, you know, if you were by yourself doing, I mean, Nolan was again out, fresh out of college and didn't know much of yeah. neither one of us. Nobody knew much about no. what we were doing <laughs> other than the engineering part. And how hard could all the other stuff, manufacturing, accounting, person, how hard mm-hmm. could that be? You know? <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. You were going to learn all about that. Now, look, I'm, I'm going to ask a few more about Ted before we get back to you, to your sure. story. Is that, um, 
obviously Ted ended up, well, maybe you're, you know, you were there, is that the story is that um, Nolan bought him out. That makes it sound very amicable. Was it that amicable, Al? No, no, no. It Are you was... okay talking about this? Yeah, I'll, I'll talk about it. Uh, it was uh, the, 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 the task, you know, we had Ted's brother and other people we hired were doing the route operations. Yeah. Uh, besides that, Nolan, Nolan was designing a two player, uh, a two player computer space for right. Dunning Associates, mm-hmm. which there's a prototype of, and that's about it. And he was also designing a, a, a pinball play field uh, oh. uh, for Valley. We had a contract with Valley. And uh, uh, so Ted was helpful on those things. But when it came and, and he picked up the task of manufacturing, right. setting up a plant, setting up a manufacturing operation. And uh, uh, that was faltering. That was it's tough. I mean, we were engineers, you know, all of a sudden, how hard could this be? Well, it was hard. Uh, and, uh, and one day Nolan came into my office where I was designing uh, Pong and said, you're probably going to quit, Al. I go, what? 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 <laughs> yeah. Huh? And, and he said, I'm going to have to let Ted Dabney go. And uh, he, right. Ted and I were good friends. And, uh, right. uh, it was, I was shocked. And, uh, and then at that time, Ted came into my office with, you know, when we were Nolan and Ted and three and Nolan said, what's our manufacturing? How many machines can we build a day? How much, mm-hmm. you know, inventory, that sort of those questions. And yeah. Ted didn't really have any viable answers for that. And I was like taken aback. I mean, he, I mean, I wouldn't have any answers for it either. I'm an electrical engineer. Uh, and, and I could see that I guess this is okay. You know, I was shocked. I mean, here I am 24 years old. I barely out of college and, uh, uh, this is going on. So I said, well, okay, I'm not going to quit, but I was, I was saddened. You know, it was yeah. uh, unfortunate. The way you've played it there is that Nolan was definitely the boss. I thought the understanding was that it was a partnership. <clears throat> Are you saying it was a partnership on paper, but really Nolan was clearly the boss here? Yeah, he he, he was in charge. Yeah, he was uh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay. Would it be fair to say that then he technically fired uh, Ted? Is, is that Yes, pushing? yes. Although technically it gets to be troublesome because, uh, <laughs> you know, it is, as you said, it's a partnership. And mm. it's not an employee relationship. I was an employee. I was employee yes. number three. Nolan was number one. Ted was number two. And mm. so how do you, you know, how do you fire a partner? And, yeah. and we were so naive that wouldn't stop Nolan from doing something. A lot of people would start to hire a bunch of attorneys and stuff like that. We did have an attorney, but they gave us a bad attorney. I mean, cause we were, we were, you know, we had no funding. You understand? You, normally when you start right. a company, you get somebody to put money into it. Yes. <laughs> capital. Yeah, that usually. We had helps. no yeah. capital. I mean, so, you know, uh, 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 it, it, it was a kind of a strange deal and we got bad advice and, uh, Nolan repaid back his, uh, uh, what he paid for the original stock in Syzygy and gave him a route or something, but it was all done wrong. And it all later on at the very end, it all got reversed by Warner Communications. Oh. When Warner bought us, they had to clean up all these horrible messes. This is wonderful stuff and so candid. Um I just say it sounds like you were genuine you know, a genuine friend of Ted's. Yeah. Did you did you keep in touch afterwards, particularly when Atari, you know, grew so big? You know, did did you keep in touch with Ted? 
not a lot. I mean, Ted was understandably bitter from 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 this, you know. Right. So so we did have communications and uh, we helped them on their 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 route. I mean, the route operations were critical to funding Atari or Syzygy company in the beginning. But once mm-hmm. once Pong took off, yeah, you know that was just not tough in our wheelhouse. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, so, I understand. So Ted had that. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was, uh, and, and what happened eventually at the end, uh, with the Warner thing, they settled with Ted again oh, so, and actually paid oh, him. So he did get some more money amount. much later on. They, oh yeah. Oh, so that, oh, I'm, I didn't know that. So at yeah. least he got some money in what, 76 or whenever, when, yeah, um, yeah. when Warner, uh, uh yeah, 76. 77 okay. he got some money out of that as he, as he well should have yeah that's and he got, well, to, he got to keep a route <laughs> well that's good that's interesting so he got his at least he got some money and i wonder if we're doing you know the community are doing our bit to give him some credit you certainly seem to acknowledge his role back then it was important then in the very beginning yes yeah let's get back to your story al um i believe you grew up in san francisco so please tell us were you a hippie al Sort of. Eventually, when I when I went to Berkeley, uh, uh, I, I got more that way. But you know, in San Francisco, before I went to Berkeley, I was my main thing uh, was a football jock. Yeah, I was all state, and uh, uh, you know, quite quite the football player. At, at right. high what school. position? What position was, did you uh, play? I was a, a tackle and a middle guard. So I was in the middle of the, all the fighting oh. and the. Hitting and the pushing, yeah. You know, that, do you that think that pro- great, yeah. great, great, great training for being a manager? <laughs> okay, yeah, nice one. That's it. Excellent. So, I mean, were you also an en- were you also interested in you know engineering and technology as well as being a all American kind of jock by the sound of it? Oh yeah, yeah. At, 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 in the, I started wondering how everything worked when I was very young and, and, and fortunately when I, when I, I grew up in the, right near the corner of Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco and my right. neighbor across the street owned a television repair shop, uh, down about a half a mile down Haight street. And, and so after school, and I'm talking middle school, junior high school, uh, I would go down after school to the TV repair shop and, right. uh, help them fix radios and work in the shop. So I knew that. And I'd taken a course, my father signed me up for a correspondence course by RCA in uh, oh. radio and television repair. And uh, uh, I really wanted to, yeah, I, I, I knew, I wanted, I wanted to be an electrical engineer. I wasn't sure what they did, but I knew that's what I wanted <laughs> to do. To, yeah. And your dream was to come true. Now, you know, at the start of uh, this show, we try to dispel a myth about what actually happen on that first night you put a pong machine in maybe this is where we dispel another myth is it true you mentioned you're a football player did you ever play alongside oj simpson oh yeah i beat the shit out of him a few times yeah well <laughs> sure so he, i tackled oj <laughs> right tell us more you flattened oj tell us was is this in college is this in college no no this no here's the situation i'm in high school he's in high school i guess we're the same age and mm-hmm. and uh, he played. It was weird. He lived out in Hunters Point area, which was all the way across the city, seven miles from Galileo High School, where he was a student. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how that happened. Okay, uh, and Galileo was primarily uh, serviced the Chinese area, 
So mm-hmm. I, I love Ch- some of my best friends are Chinese, okay? Mm-hmm. But they don't always make the best football players, right? Mm-hmm. And so this happened to be the worst team in the city. And you could imagine, <laughs> I mean, how bad it had to be for the, the coach to have O.J. Simpson on his team and they couldn't win a barely win a game. <laughs> he never got. He did not get a any offers from any colleges to go to go to their college. He went to City College of San Francisco, and all of a sudden he had a real team and a real football coach, and he makes All American his first. <laughs> Amazing, but you flat, you flat. He was. A, I mean, I remember that football means something different this side of the park. Yes, but yes. was he a running? Is it was he a running back? Yeah, he was. A, right. He was a running right. back. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah yeah. So that means he was you, good. Uh, he was very good. <laughs> and you managed to flatten him more than once. Probably. Yeah. I mean, he didn't think much of it because I mean, he was just another football player, but he was clearly the best. And some of the other players in the team were just—they were so bad. The team was so bad. They pulled out. The first, our first string football team, uh, in the, in the second half. We just didn't bother to put the first string in in the second half because it was going to be yeah. a blowout. Yeah. Wow. Well, and just, I, I mean, I, I hope I, you don't mind me asking this. So go on then. Did he do it or not? Do what? You know what I'm talking about. N- no, I don't actually. <laughs> <laughs> right. Should we just move on so that we don't get libelous at any point here? Okay. I think we need to redo the intro, actually. Our creator of Pong and flattener of OJ Simpson. <laughs> quite, a, quite, quite a. Well, but that that whole thing, that whole football thing, played a very important role in my career because. I was going to the academic high school in San Francisco, Lowell High School, hmm. uh, and and it's a very hard uh, 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 pre-college, college prep type of thing. And I'm kind of a lazy guy, so I would get B's and C's. So I didn't really have the grades to get into Cal. Uh, I remember the Vietnam War was going on at this time. So there was a certain charm going to college where you didn't have to go to Vietnam and get killed. And I had friends of mine that did go to Vietnam and get killed. So, oh, you man. know, it was incentive to stay in college and get into a good college. Yeah. But I clearly wanted to get into Cal because they had an electrical engineering program. And, but I didn't have the grace, but there was one uh, counselor at high school who felt I wasn't my official counselor, but he was a guy that was a Cal grad. And since I was such a good football player, wanted, thought I could help. If I played for Cal, they'd win more games, was basically. And he introduced, somehow got it going. And, uh, uh, and I managed to get not a scholarship. I, I, he showed me how to get past the entrance requirements with, uh, tests that I could take. So now all of a sudden I was accepted at the UC system. But getting on the Cal campus was another challenge. They wanted to put me at Santa Cruz, which is a, which just, opened up. It didn't have an engineering. Well, I went and visited, did a tour of the campus with the coach and I got transferred to Cal. So now I'm playing football. I'm a student at Cal. I'm on the freshman team and I'm playing football for Cal, but I had no scholarship. So that's how that happened. And I played for about, oh, I don't know, a week and uh, I decided that uh, I wasn't going to be able to graduate from Cal playing football uh, and maintaining an engine, getting an engineering degree. So I hmm. quit football after pretty soon, but now I'm still a student. Uh, so that's how I happened. 
Oh, interesting. Um, also, it is it's my task to take us back to um, video game Ground Zero. Um, so you're at Ampex. You're approached by Nolan Bushnell. Nolan to, and Ted. Nolan and Ted took me okay. to lunch one day. Yeah. To 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 join this crazy new venture. I mean, how much of a gamble was it for you? You you, you uh, alluded to this earlier. Ah, uh, I mean, good question. Good question. Because uh, to to many people, it was. You know, I was advised this was a stupid move, foolish move, dangerous. You know, mm-hmm. again, a good job at Ampex. You're lucky to have that and uh doing a startup but you got to realize i was 24 years old uh i wasn't married i didn't have any responsibilities i had a girlfriend that you know became my wife later on but uh now's the time to take the chance if i had the wife and the kids and the whole catastrophe you know i could risk no income i didn't need any in fact nolan offered me a thousand dollar a month salary ampex Mm -hmm. at that time was paying me uh, $1,100 a month. So I took a salary cut, uh, to do it. But my thought was this would be a real exciting thing to get to go start a company with two friends, you know, both engineers. There'd be no right. bullshit, none of this other stuff. And we, and I figured it would fail in about a year or two. And I'd go back to work in Ampex. That was my, that was my okay. plan, but I was going to have, see how far I could get with this thing. And not to knock your, um, you know, uh, stellar abilities at, at at the time, Al. But would it be fair to say that you were, you know, clearly the sort of junior guy of the three? And your main appeal to Nolan at that point was you were you were cheap. That's a that was. <laughs> I think that clearly with all due respect, high on the list. But I, I honestly, <laughs> I because you got to understand, technology changes very rapidly in this business. You understand? Yes. You got to keep at it. And the older engineers at Ampex, which might have been, you know, somebody they would have hired, they wouldn't have had the recent training I did in TTL logic and uh, programming and other stuff, you know, because okay. all this stuff was coming out was new. So I was pretty adept and I had a background. I understood television from the days mm-hmm. fixing televisions really well. And uh, I understood digital logic because I, they forced me to learn that at Cal. I wanted to be an analog engineer, but at Cal, the degree program, uh, my degree is electrical engineering and computer science. And even though I didn't think, I thought computers were just uh, boring kind of machines, they force, mm. force fed me a lot of knowledge about that, thank God, because Pong was really a recreation of computer circuits, uh, TTL logic gates to do a game instead of a computer. So in many ways, you were actually the, the, the kind of perfect candidate. I mean, you, you, as you say, you were sort of, you know, young, relatively naive, cheap. no responsibilities. You were cheap, but yeah. you, you had clearly the right recent experience that, um, Nolan needed. Um, yeah. 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 So you joined Syzygy. Um, and Nolan immediately puts you to work on a project, which would, as we right, know, right. now know, would ultimately become yeah. Pong. Can you can you sort of summarize that? that yeah, that, yeah, that yeah, first? yeah. The first assignment, he says, sit down in his office in this little, on Scott Boulevard, it's a little, probably 5,000 square foot thing. Uh, and he says, I, we got this contract from General Electric to build a home video game. And he describes Pong, which mm-hmm. I think obviously him seeing the Magnavox Odyssey must have inspired him. 
only because, again, it was the absolute simplest possible thing you could put on it. Call it a game. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Just one moving object, the score. It was just the simplest possible thing. And he said it had to be a home version, which meant that the cost of the parts had to be somewhere around 25 or $30 if it was going to be a home product. We knew that. And mm -hmm. so I just started designing this thing with what I knew, the logic that I knew with using these chips. And these chips cost about, I don't know, 25, 35 cents a piece at that time. And I was up to like 70 some odd chips and it worked. The game worked, but it was, I was pretty depressed because, you know, there's no way this is going to be a home game. I mean, mm -hmm. you couldn't do it. It's going to cost, you know, a printed circuit board. It's going to cost a couple hundred dollars for that logic board. And so I was considering it was kind of like kind of slightly depressed because I wasn't, Nolan didn't seem bothered by this. It never occurred to me that nobody from General Electric ever called or came by or wrote us a letter. <laughs> uh, and Nolan was not at all upset when, uh, uh, you know, when I, I, I finished this thing and it was way too expensive for a uh, home game. Mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, at that point, I remember he said, well, it's got to have, it's got to have sound. I didn't have sound on it. And I was, and, and he said, I wanted the sound of a roar of a crowd of thousands when you make a point. Ted Dabney said, I want to hear boos and hisses. And I, I said, I don't know how to do either one of those things, uh, but I'll see what I can do. So I went back and Poke and get knowing that I didn't want to put any more chips in this thing, uh, and I didn't know how to do those sounds that they wanted. I just poked around for tones that were already in the machine uh, mm -hmm. that I could that I could gate out and call them sounds. And I said, "There it is." It took a half a day to do it, and uh, and I said, "Nolan, if you don't like it, here's the wire wrap gun. You go do it yourself because I can't do it." <laughs> and I remember the other one was I. He said the thing has to have instructions, and I said, "Nolan, if you have to read instructions." To play a video game when you're half drunk, this is not going to work. You don't need it. It's just obvious how to play this thing. I don't care. Got to have instructions. All game. I said, pinball machines don't have instructions. He said, yes, they do. In the lower left-hand corner, there's a whole list of, well, okay. So the instructions were, you know, insert quarters. <laughs> that was step one. Uh, yep. pretty, as far as I was concerned, we had, we, our job was done. Step two was a ball will serve automatically. And step three was avoid missing ball for a high score, which, right. which is, uh, should be on my tombstone. And did, 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 did you come up with avoid missing ball for high school? I think so. I think so. Yeah. I mean, those, those very, um, you know, sort of, sort of brief boiled down instructions really kind of tell the tale of Pong in that you know, less is more, um, for all sorts of reasons. So from a gameplay perspective, it needs to be super easy for people to just be able to, to kind of rock up and understand. Um, but, but also, you know, when, when creating something completely new using technology that's out there, that, that wasn't really intended to do what you were trying to make it do, the main focus had to be cost. So these, these, all of these kind of challenges that you had to, to sort of turn what was a, a sort of cool, um, technical challenge set to you by Nolan into a commercially viable product. I mean, it, it must have been a sort of constant challenge, not just creating it, but trying to squeeze all this in and making it simple to well, play. Well, it was more but, than but, that. I mean, when I had a wire wrap prototype that was very, very crude, 
Uh, so hmm. when the machine died in the first week, I wasn't surprised at all. I figured that, you know, a wire had come loose or something as it was not meant to do this. It was a very crude prototype. Right. Uh, so, uh, uh, yeah, it was, uh, I, 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 the other part was, you know, where do we get the television sets? Where do we get yes. the, the cabinets? And then that was a stroke of luck people don't know about. Because, uh, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, wood butchering was not in taught in engineering school. And, and Ted had some experience in, a, in his home workshop, but, you know, how are we going to get cabinets made that would survive being shipped across the country, have people playing them? You know, if somebody's playing a video game and it steals their quarter, the player thinks he has a right to destroy the machine. You know, so this is not a simple thing to build. Well, it turned out there was a company right there in Santa Clara, uh, uh, P.S. Hurlbit, that uh, had a big wood shop that was making cabinets and stuff, but they had a big slump in their business, and uh, we were there with the product. And these guys were smart enough, so Nolan and them worked out the with the aesthetics, if you can call them that, of the cabinet, uh, and uh, they built it in a way that uh, they they actually did the that kind of a design to make it. I mean, you realize you got a, a maybe a twenty pound TV set on a shelf inside this thing. And they're going right. to drop it at some point, you know, on its back, mm-hmm. and that TV has to stay in there. So, yeah, yep. that was that. That all that all worked. We were very lucky to have that uh, buy. And the other thing that's important uh, is where do we get the money to buy the parts to build this stuff? That's the banks wouldn't talk to us because you know at that point they said, oh, the coin operated entertainment. That's the mob, right? So the banks would they wouldn't give us a loan. Venture capitalists, there weren't many, and they wouldn't talk to us. We had, you know, they want to know what are your sales, what have you done? We did nothing. <laughs> so, so uh, the best, the funding, believe it or not, effectively came from the uh, electronic parts di- distributors. So, you, you know, Signetics and Intel and, and make the parts, uh-huh. but they sell them through distribution, through uh, companies that distribute these things. And right. those guys gave us like a uh, 60-day credit. So we'd order stuff, we'd get the parts, and we could turn them into Pongs. We could actually turn them into Pongs within two weeks. <laughs> and get, right. and the, the game was so popular, we were getting cash up front. So we would get a right. 1000 bucks or so, whatever we charged for them. We probably cost us $600 to make them. And yeah. we had damn little overhead. And so we just, I mean, Nolan really should give a course on how to get a company started uh, with no funding. <laughs> well, I mean, he, it's what he did. And uh, sure. I don't know how he did it. I mean, it was, uh, there were times when payday would come and we'd be erased to the bank to see who could get their checks cashed before they would <laughs> stop cashing them. <laughs> Brilliant. And what about the um, display unit? Al? Yeah, the uh, <clears throat> the television set. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I just went over to the local Walmart drugstore, big drugstore thing, you know, and, uh, they had it, they sold TVs and they got a little cute little Hitachi black and white TV set. Uh, and, uh, I, mod- I knew how to modify it from my days fixing TVs to turn it into a monitor. And, <laughs> uh, that's what I put in there. And so when we went into production, that's the set that we used and, it was kind of weird because we established an account, I guess, with the distributor for that stuff was down in Los Angeles. Uh, and, uh, but you know, we're not using them as TVs. 
we're destroying them, turn, you know, taking out the tuner and making it a monitor. Uh, and, and so there's no warranty coverage. So there were some, there were some issues that went on with the TV because how do I put it? We were paying what a TV repair shop would pay, you know, it was selling TVs. Mm -hmm. But when we sold it, there was no warranty or anything. So they saved money and that money was given back. And there's this, well, there's a very famous picture, which I'm sure you have seen. With Ted Dabney, uh, me, Nolan Bushnell, the Pong, and another guy wearing a suit and tie. You know that picture? Uh, yes. In fact, I can tell you the guy's name. Uh, Fred Marinick. Fred, uh, Fred Marinchek. Yeah. And, and, and unfortunately, we had to let him go. Okay. Uh, and I don't want to say too much more about it because I don't want to say naughty things about people, but it, it didn't work out, shall we say, with him. So uh, <laughs> he was let okay. go and we saved some money on televisions. <laughs> You're amongst friends, Al. You can say what you like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Clearly, Pong was a was a massive su success. Um, and as the saying goes, imitation is the best form of flattery. Mm -hmm. but, um, what very quickly ensued was um, multiple copy versions of Pong as other manufacturers got wind of this hugely successful um, game. I mean, did did the bootleg versions of Pong hurt or, or, or hinder Syzygy? That's a good question. Um, obviously, it would have been nice to sell more machines. But frankly, I don't know that we could have supplied that many more. Uh, we, we, we did set up a factory mm -hmm. uh, in an old roller skating rink, uh, and we were building them as fast as we could. But... Uh, but yeah, if it wasn't for that, I, I, so that's, you know, I, I, I guess it would have, but certainly imitation is a serious form of flattery for sure. Uh, I would like the money, but what we had that nobody else had, and we didn't bother to try to file patents or sue them because the competition in the coin out business is kind of sleazy. And if you sue them, they'll just go away and reappear somewhere else. or you're just wasting your time and money. And mm. our our key to success was we had, we could build the next game. We could right. invent more games. Nobody else could. Nobody, most of these guys building them had no idea how they were working. They just had got copies of our printed circuit board with stuffed parts in them. And, you know, mm -hmm. they weren't anywhere positioned to design a new game. So that's what, that was our, uh, how we stayed in business. Yeah. And, um, just a couple of bits of housekeeping. Um, Syzygy ultimately changed its name to Atari. Mm -hmm. What, what was the catalyst for that, for that happening? Oh, uh, when Nolan tried to, I don't know, copyright it or whatever, register a company under that name, it turned out there was interference. There was already some other company with that name. Uh, okay. And uh, it wasn't much of a company, but we didn't want to fight it. So the second choice was Atari. Now, at one of the conferences we went to, we had, uh, I had a, 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 a IEEE Engineering Society had a, had a meeting one evening with Nolan, me, uh, Steve Mayer, and uh, 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 oh, another engineer. I'm terrible. Anyway, uh, and somebody in the audience, a very small audience, mostly of historians and librarians and other people interested in the history. Somebody asked, <clears throat> who came up with the name Atari? Or no, Pong. I'm sorry, Pong. Mm -hmm. I, and, and Nolan pointed at me and I pointed at Nolan. We didn't know. 
Uh, it didn't make any difference because it wasn't that important. Syzygy, uh, the Atari name, Nolan, as you know, was a Go player. And uh, so yeah. apparently that that's the first thing that came to mind. Also, he'd read a book on naming a company. It, the, you know, it should be short, sweet, uh, and and uh, not be a real word. So that was his. Mm. Uh, that was his. And my brother thought I was working for a Japanese company for many years. <laughs> Interesting. Um, before I hand you over to Richie, final question from me. Um, as engineers, I would have thought that your intention at this around this time was to design games and then basically sell the license to a bally or a midway or a nutting for them to do the the dirty work of actually building a cabinet butchering some wood and selling the game so you could just sit there write games and get checks through the post that that was the original plan yes okay so how did that go from that into having you know manufacture these bloody things because that that that's that's quite a step away from where one would assume you guys would have been at that time yes uh exactly we when we got started after nolan left nutting associates and we started up nolan was wise enough to work with bally who was a dominant manufacturer at the time Mm -hmm. and and you know that expression keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Bally was wise enough to see this game computer space, even though it wasn't much of a good game. It was so different. They realized that this could be very important. And so mm-hmm. they gave Nolan a contract. And I believe the contract had three things. Uh, I think it was to design them a video game, to do a pinball. Nolan had this crazy idea for a wide play field pinball machine and to design some kind of an arcade attraction. God knows what that was going to be. And and uh, so that was really good. I think we got like, I'm guessing, I'm just guessing, a few thousand dollars a month uh, that helped us in our pathetic cash flow. All right, kept the doors open. And, mm-hmm. uh, and that was really smart. Well, then, so think about this. So we put out Pong. We're supposed to be a throwaway, right? We get hit in the ass by lightning. It's a big hit. So Nolan has to go back. To, goes back to Bally, and the word had gotten out about this thing as a hit. <laughs> everybody was over it. Uh, everybody was coming into uh, Andy Caps to see what this thing was. And Nolan goes back to Bally, and he gets the idea. He got get, He says, "Wait a second! I don't want to get the money is going to be made in selling the final machine. Uh, you know, we don't. I just want to get a royalty check." So he convinces Bally that they don't want the game, or actually he convinces them that Williams, their subsidiary, uh, didn't want the game. And what kind of a shit-ass company would you be if you wanted the game when Williams didn't? And he told Williams the same thing about Bally. So they pass on the game. All right. Okay. So we don't know about this. So Nolan comes back from Chicago. After work, we all go to go over to Andy Cap's Tavern. We're sitting there at the bar having a beer, and Nolan tells us about his trip. And that Bally didn't want the game. And I've decided that we're going to manufacture this game. And Ted Dabney and I go, no, we're not. Boo. Uh, We're engineers. We just want to do this. Well, Nolan was the boss. And next thing we know, we're in the manufacturing business. I remember going home. My wife will tell you. I said, Nolan's crazy. He wants to build 100 machines a day. We don't have any facility, money, skills, none of that stuff. <laughs> He's nuts, but I'll go along with the gag and see how far it gets, you know. Amazing. And here we are. Yeah.
Al, thank you. Um, as we've already alluded to, Pong may have inspired a multitude of copycat titles from rival companies, but Atari's response was to produce something new and different. And your yeah. second game um, was Space Race, which yep. was which was kind of like a proto-Frogger as you tried to cross a dangerous asteroid belt. So did this idea, like Frogger, also come from trying to cross a busy road, maybe? No, it, it came from... It came from a, 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 let me start by saying that when we built a Pong machine, uh, we had to stuff all the chips into a printed circuit board, the 75 some odd chips. And and some of them, there'd be a 1% failure rate. Hmm. So all the boards had to go through a tech pool and they had to find the solder bridge or the defective part and fix it. And then it would be ready to go. And uh, you'd see defective boards and they'd produce interesting patterns. And one of them, I figured out how to do stars uh, that uh, uh, a star field that would move uh, and look random. And so it was inspired by defective Pong. And it's just something, uh, I don't know, might have been me, might have been Nolan. I don't know. I just, yeah, I, I could do it. And, and at that point, I, I guess Nolan wasn't, you know, at that point, he probably had some questions about his wisdom on what a great game was going to be <laughs> since you know, Pong was a, uh, was a, was a big mistake in a sense that a uh, throwaway game, guess what? So anything I come up with, no, sure. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, 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 so kind of like uh gotcha, which we'll come on to eventually, this was kind of a happy accident as well. Yeah. The gotcha one was inspired by a defective Pong board. Uh, 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 with, oh, sorry. I thought you. I thought you also said that uh, space race was. Well, they both of them. Both of them were right. I mean, yeah. Any, any, okay. Anything they give me some inspiration, but <laughs> yeah, and and uh, so I figure out how to make a maze that would move around. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. We'll come that. to that. Yeah. And the, the spaceship in um, in space race. Um, yeah. Was very similar to the one in computer space. Was that was that a coincidence or or is it more? No, to... I mean it was just it, the one in computer space was more difficult because it had to rotate. The one in in space race just pointed up. Okay, and if you've ever seen a space race printed circuit board, you'd see how it worked. Diodes, diodes. Right. This is before ROMs. Yeah, yeah. Diodes laying out, looking like a a rocket ship. Yeah, so it's kind of there on the um, on the board. Um, and there's obviously more happening on screen with a game like this than there was with Pong. Was it was it hard to get like, for example, the asteroid field moving? No, I just I just had to invent the uh, technique, uh -huh. you know, and because it used the motion because the Pong ball could move in you know up or down, left or right. All the rocket ship had to do was to move up at one speed, so it was a little easier. The same kind of circuitry was there for that. And you were so you were broadly using the same hardware, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. The same, the same chips, the same technology. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So before Atari was Atari, again, as we've alluded to, you know, the great video game singularity, all of which has been discussed earlier. The the, the game was initially initially developed as as Syzygy for Midway under the title Asteroid. But then the Atari Big Bang, and then you said, screw it, this is too good, we'll put it out ourselves as Space Race. Surely an exclusivity contract or... No, 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 I don't think that happened. Okay. No, no, that, that, was, that was about Pong. Pong was the one where we went, we, that caused us to go from a, a design company receiving royalties 
to a manufacturing company selling product. And that was the one. Now, once we started shipping Pongs, we somehow got the manufacturing capacity. We got distribution. Now we're in that business. And so now I had to come up with a second game to feed that pipeline. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's briefly. I, I know, I know I hate you when, when I do, but can I stop you there? Yes. Um, <laughs> Al, the, what, um, Richie was trying to allude to is that when you developed the game that Atari released to Space Race, I'm pretty sure that you delivered that to Midway as part of a contract that you'd got with them, and it was called Asteroid, because they released a game called Asteroid, and it looks exactly the same Probably. as the one. Yep. Yeah, so you mm. did. So that's what Richie was alluding to. Yeah, you I did. mean, I think I think what Nolan did, I, I, I'm starting to remember this. I mean, this is a long time, 50 years ago. No, this is cool. This is all good. Don't worry. Everybody's good. Go yeah, on. is that, that, um, that, again, I said Nolan got him off of Pong, somehow mm. convinced Bally they didn't want Pong, right. uh, even though they could have argued for it. But then I'm sure he did it. We'll give you our next game. And so there was the next game was uh, uh, – uh, it was space race. Yeah, and I, I, I'm not surprised that would that have been the deal. Yeah, let's move on to Gotcha, Al. Okay. Another early Atari game, and Gotcha was initially a happy accident, if I'm if I'm not yeah. mistaken, and that yeah. was the result of you observing a common fault on pong boards again, yeah. as you've alluded to. I believe a bad gate on the circuit that displayed the score, resulting in random parts of the score numbers placed all over the screen. So, yeah. can you tell us how how that inspired the maze layout of Gotcha? Well, that was exactly it. I'm going, well, all I got to do is take some of those objects, those, those segments and, uh, and move them with the motion circuit, the same motion circuit that I'd had for a uh, bottom, but they yeah. only had to move in the horizontal direction. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And Atari's product designer, George Farocco, am I pronouncing that correctly? Okay. George okay. Farocco, Farocco. Yeah. Let's yeah, pull the whole yeah. thing off. Yep. Yeah. He was tasked with, uh, producing the cabinet design for Gotcha. Yeah. And, and obviously, the two joysticks required for the players to control their on-screen sprites were surrounded with um, the now infamous two pink domes. So right, right, perhaps well. you can clear this up, Al. Those boob controllers were soon replaced with traditional joysticks. Yeah, but, you got to understand, one of the key things that Nolan did that was different than everybody else, when we did Pong, remember, the cabinet on Pong was just wood grain vinyl stuff. There were no yep. naked ladies, no tits and ass. It was meant to be. It was meant <laughs> to be uh, something you could put in a restaurant and that women would play. Whereas a pinball machine in those days, mm-hmm. you know, were very masculine oriented. Mm-hmm. And Nolan didn't want that. He wanted a. And indeed, Pong was interesting because I think it's to this day the only two-player only game. There's no one-player mode. So two people, and I think one of the reasons it succeeded was that ladies could play it just as well as a man. And that produced a lot of social interaction. But now, uh, and I believe Space Race would have been a two-player game also. Yeah, I I believe so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So just for the benefit of our listeners, because we don't do a video version of this podcast, we we are audio only. So when I say there were two boobs instead of joysticks, they literally were and 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 obviously the advertising material was pushed in that direction and and this was obviously a deliberate attempt to stir up some wonderfully risque controversy, right? Well, it was it was it was a deliberate attempt on George Farrakos' part. Yes. Uh, when Nolan saw it, he did not like it. 
And so. Oh, really? Oh, no. Oh, no, Uh no, no, no. There were very few machines built. I don't think there were more than 10 Hmm. built with boobs. Uh, we were, you know, Nolan didn't want that. Uh, Just like that's how I say when he did Pong, it was clearly so when it, when George put those on, no, I mean, they made great pictures and they were funny and all that, but, Mm. uh, no, they, they got yanked off pretty quickly. Oh, that's really interesting. I thought I, I kind of assumed it was the other way around, but that's good to know. Um, I was going to ask if it was an innocent industrial design choice, but clearly not. Was, uh, <laughs> no, George, no, no. So hang on, so hang on. I mean, just with reference to the flyer for a moment, I mean, I mean, this was pre-George um, Opperman, wasn't it? Um, uh, gee, well, no. Or not, or not, George, no, he was there. Okay, the Atari logo, the Fuji logo, they Well, he did, yeah, George, of course, did the Fuji logo, but was well, George, was, George Opperman was around? But that was done pretty early on. Now, I think we first did that as a contract. He was an independent contract. Yes, he was. We, yes, he and was. And so yeah. we did that there. We paid him. That's a fun, that's another funny, hilarious story. Go uh, on. We, we, we paid him, I don't know, a few thousand dollars for that logo. When Warner bought us in 76, 77, uh, they went to their advertising firm because these, these guys don't know what they're doing. We'll, we'll punch it up, make it a better, logo and a better image and all that. Well, the advertising firm, some some New York Madison Avenue firm was very good. And the first thing they did was did market testing to see what the awareness of the Atari logo and the Atari stuff was. And guess what? It was better than Mickey Mouse. Okay. It was, yeah. it was incredible. And they said, don't touch anything. And that cost them a hundred grand to find out. Don't touch anything. I thought that was hilarious because we paid Opperman le- less than ten grand for the whole logo. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, it's an amazing logo, isn't it? In fact, um, actually, just rewatching recently Blade Runner two thousand forty nine, and and obviously that was a it was a big feature in the original Blade Runner. But to see that logo uh, on the side of a huge skyscraper in in, in that sequel film in in a film made only a few years ago was just absolutely amazing um sorry just a little movie nerd aside there so so just one last thing on gotcha um so ed fry's former xbox project lead and uh and well-known collector and hobbyist managed to get managed to resurrect a color version of gotcha uh-huh. are you aware of this al yeah yeah right yeah 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 yep. so the, 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 but and, and this i mean our 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 listeners can um can just do a very quick Google search and look into that. But this makes Gotcha actually, I think, the first ever color video game. Am I right? Yeah, I don't know how many of those were built. I have no idea. But yeah, it was. Uh, you know, come on, we're an engineering thing. We're inventing new stuff. We're trying new things, and mm. uh, and we let's try to make it color. Uh, yeah, that was. Uh, Does it? Is it? I mean, uh, kind of. You know, for yourself, looking back at that, I mean, is that something that you'd kind of forgotten about, or or just assume was lost to time, or? Well, I don't think I don't. Okay, so here's the gotta gotta realize. <clears throat> I was employee number three, and yes. and I and I and, and so I'm designing a uh, 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 space race and gotcha, but we still have to keep the factory running, and I'm like, yes. wait a second, I cannot do all of this stuff. So yeah. we had some ex-Ampex uh, engineers, Steve Mayer and Larry Emmons, that wound up leaving Ampex and moving to Grass Valley up in the yeah. Sierras. And long story, they had a company called uh, uh, Cyan, C-Y-A-N Engineering, and Nolan hired them, gave them a contract. They could be our R&D firm. They were smart enough to do this. 
and I could just be vice president of engineering and do that stuff. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I was, uh, you, so they, they did that. Oh, right. I mean, uh, okay. I mean, sh- share some more memories about that. Al. Well, you, I mean, you while know, I've got you on that. Yeah. So here I am a young engineer. I was 24 years old and I'm now managing, I'm vice president of engineering of a rapidly growing company, you know, yeah. fresh out of college. And, and, uh, it was, it was something that this grew and Nolan sensed that we had to do this. I was a little uncomfortable because, you know, here I am managing these people and there are, some of them are smarter than me. And, and, uh, that was, it took some understanding and growing up to become a, a, a manager, but I, I really didn't like it. Uh, that's another story. How that, that's sort of what what produced the home version of Pong. That's another story. Right, and I, I, I think we're definitely going to get to that too. Were you were you, were, you um, were they older than you, Al, or were they? Uh, Steve Mayer was my age, is my age, and uh, Larry Emmons was older. Yeah, yeah. Fine, fine. Okay. So that was a little unusual because I don't think Larry um, really enjoyed my, me that much because you know he was when we were at Ampex, he was senior to me. Yeah, uh, well, that's what I was. That's what I was trying to get to. So they, I, I was going to ask how they took to you managing them. Um, oh, and, Steve Mayer sounds like not so well. Steve Mayer was no problem. He's a, he's been a lifelong friend. He is a lifelong friend, yes. and we've had a lot of fun and laughs doing this whole thing. And uh, you know, Larry was understandably a little uncomfortable with uh, my management style or just the fact that I was there. Uh, he was kind nice wing, to me. Winging it. Yeah, there was never any hostility. It was just, you know, that's I sensed that. But hey, uh, to be a manager and yeah, yeah, sure. But it wasn't it wasn't your wheelhouse at the end of the day. It's not something I liked. I wanted to. I'm an engineer. I wanted to design circuits. And being a manager, I discovered is like being a kindergarten teacher. And you got to keep <laughs> the kids from fighting. You got to keep them happy and fed, and you know, and settle disputes and stuff like that. And that's not that's not stuff I learned in engineering school. No, I can vouch for that. You're absolutely right. <laughs> yeah, that's Paul's. Uh, I mean, sorry, Tony. Jesus, one more time. That's Tony saying. I'm going to uh, actually, speaking of Paul, um, thank you, Al. I'm going to hand you back over to Paul, and he's going to talk to you about key games and tank, etc. Hi, I'm Alex Crowley. The Ted Dabney Experience is brought to you in association with the Arcade Archive, a classic arcade museum here in the UK. We're open every weekend in Stroud, Gloucestershire, where you can get hands-on with some of the greatest titles from the golden era of video gaming. Check us out at the arcadearchive.co.uk for more information and to book tickets. Um, Al, as you know, we are speaking to you from this side of the pond, Britain, and we always like to explore a local link. Oh, I think it's right to say that you came over to uh, to England in the you know the early seventies, kind of seventy three, to help with the creation of Atari UK. Is that right? That is correct. Yes, I did. Uh huh. Okay, so let's ask. And I'm speaking to you from from Nottingham. Oh, um, isn't Nottingham Nottingham's actually where you inst- helped install the very first Pong machine? Can you can you remember that? Well, I I did not install I, I was not going out on the route or anything i was simply working inside the company to help them you know be able to manufacture this get this in production okay let's pick up that story then atari uk was essentially two two blokes 
um, Phil Smith, who was the money man, and Alistair Crooks, who was a young uh, engineer, um, they came across to um, meet Nolan uh, right. in sort of 73. I think they may have met you. Can you vaguely recall oh, these sure. two yeah. Englishmen? Sure. Right, tell yeah, us. Back, back in those days, the, you know, our facility, Atari is very small, so if they came over, you know, I would have seen them. Uh, and it's like if anybody from uh, General Electric ever came by, I would have seen them because they would have had to go by my desk. <laughs> okay. So, so yeah, but no, uh, they were primarily dealing with Nolan, uh, and obviously they they saw the uh, wisdom of of Fong and uh, yeah. wanted to do it. And Nolan wanted to increase the distribution of the game. You know, we pretty much had America. I mean, within the first year. Of Atari, mm -hmm. we had all of a sudden exceeded the production of uh, uh, Valley. Uh, yes, yeah, so, amazing. Uh, yeah. So you were you were obviously growing hugely over in the states. Were you? How can I put this? Were you surprised that two English blokes essentially turn up fairly unannounced, saying that they wanted to set up a UK division of Atari? I mean, did that surprise you? No, I was so young, I didn't. See, like, sure, why not? How hard could this be? <laughs> I didn't understand. You know, I said, sure. Yeah. And, and Nolan now, tried to sell yeah. these machines all across the world. And there were some horrible stories, specifically Japan, the way, you know, it, it was just a, 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 it was a negative experience. Believe me, we didn't know what we were doing or he didn't. And yeah. uh, so yeah, I was glad, it, yeah. glad to get some distribution in England, anywhere in Europe. Yeah. Uh, Let's pick up your, we are talking about your story. So you came over to England in, in 73. Yeah. I believe. I just wondered when you came over, what did, what did you find? Was it, was it, um, were they doing well over here or did it all seem a little amateurish? Well, I mean, since nobody, there was nobody making video games, uh, in the world except for us and our competitors in America. I mean, it, it, certainly it was amateur, but that's just like, that's what we did. We were amateurs. I mean, so it just seemed like the normal thing. You know, I mean, I, I probably would have been, it would have been much harder to take it into an existing company that was building cabinets or something, you know, because now you had to fight against whatever uh, policies and procedures that they had uh, that you didn't need. That would be, you know, it's easier. You got... You're just making something from nothing. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, it was interesting that they started by importing the, the whole Pong machine, but then realized that this was incredibly expensive and time-consuming. So right. they started just importing the, the boards. Yeah, we called it a kit. Uh, that's it. Right? I love that. Now, I, I want to ask a bit more. So when you arrived, I think they were, they were building cabinets and putting your boards in them. Were, were you sort of over there to well, check that they were doing a good job? No, I was over there to help them get it into production. Right. You know, it wasn't, I wasn't trying to criticize their work or anything. <laughs> I was there to help. So you tell me what you mm -hmm. need and uh, I'll, yeah. I'll help you make it work. Yeah. That's interesting. Back then, there was no kind of brand protection. It was you genuinely, let's try and help these guys spread the Atari gospel, I suppose. Sure, sure. I mean, they're going to buy the machines. They're going to buy the boards. It made a lot of sense. <laughs> and, and especially... The, the, the thing was designed for a United States television, not European. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, so they had course. to find a TV, a local TV that would work, you know, and there mm. were some of that, some of those issues, uh, power supplies, stuff like that. Um, I think you don't, didn't only come to the, to the UK. Did you also travel to Europe to look at sort of, you know, your 
is distribution network pushing it a bit but some of your contacts people you were selling to in europe yeah yeah we had uh um we had a, a, a organization in uh, northern spain in bilbao the basque country and yeah. uh, yeah. i went that was our first stop my wife and i we did that i'd never i had never been east of reno and all right. of a sudden, I'm I'm in Bilbao with hey. uh, with uh, 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 who's the uh, Spanish dictator uh, Franco? Yeah, Franco was so swinging God. around. Yeah, and and, so and I remember we went into a they, they're wonderful Basque people. You want to have them as friends, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, you don't want to go on the wrong side of Etta. Yeah, and and we took us to dinner one time at a lovely Basque restaurant up in the mountains. And there was a pack of zigzag cigarette papers nearby. And I said, oh, in California, I can smoke marijuana with these. And <laughs> the lady said, it is prohibited to say the word marijuana. <laughs> oh, yes. okay. So, and I'm out of Berkeley in the 60s, you know. So uh, going, hmm, things are different. I'm learning about uh, uh, the freedoms in America. And yeah, yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> Yes, and I'd that, like to point out we weren't all we weren't all fascists in Europe in the uh, in the seventies. But anyway, um, <laughs> okay, good, uh, good to know. Go. Good to know. Good to know. Okay, uh, yeah. Um, anyway, um, we uh, now Alistair Crooks, who was part of Tory UK, is now in his uh, I think he's, he's in his eighties now, but he's still alive, and we're going to try and get him on on the the show. I think you're still friends with him, aren't you? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have a love of airplanes and cars and travel and stuff like that. Yeah, I'm still good friends with him. Excellent. So we'll get him on the show. But Atari UK went bust in 1974. Was that a I mean, can you remember that happening? Was it a surprise or was it perhaps the writing on the wall? No, I'm not the right guy to ask because I, I was, again, you know, mm -hmm. head down uh, trying to get new machines out, uh, doing engineering stuff. So and the company had grown big enough that this was just another event. Of all kinds yeah. of events were happening, you know. Yes, <laughs> I imagine. Yes, there was a, there was a lot going on. Now, one one of the reasons I've spoken to Alistair, one of the reasons that um, Atari UK didn't survive is they'd had huge success with Pong. That they renamed it Wimbledon uh, over here. Yeah. Um, but is that they wanted a follow up as successful as Pong? Of course, they did. We've talked about space race. We've talked about gotcha. Really interesting ideas and definitely different to Pong. But these were not hit games compared with the success that Pong had been. Um, I wanted to ask you, was, I mean, were you surprised when you produced two different original games and they're nowhere near as successful as Pong? Was that a surprise? Uh, no, I, as I recall, it wasn't a surprise. Uh, uh, again, I, I was surprised that anything was selling and it was okay. working <laughs> and, and, uh, yeah, no, it, it was it was just something we whipped out quickly, and you know, in mm. retrospect, the ball and paddle games people wanted ball and paddle games. Yeah, and so we made mm. an endless endless modifications of pong, we make four player, quadrupong, all this. You know. Yeah, you even put pong in a barrel. Well, that was, that was actually that was... a very important thing because that's again yes. Nolan saying, "I want to increase the market for these machines." Because the mm -hmm. old endemic companies, they were just doing the same thing over and over again. And why yeah. can't we put these in bars, you know, new locations in the in where yeah. people are sitting, and they could get drunk, sit there and play pong. 
And so, and so Nolan did it and nobody would buy the damn thing. It's very interesting story because the operators, that's not what they did. You, you know what I mean? We're saying, Hey, mm -hmm. operators do something different. Go find a new customer. And they wouldn't do it. So, mm -hmm. not, so it, they just said, I don't, we made a, we made a bunch of pongs in a barrel and, and but no, they didn't, they wouldn't sell. I, I'm intrigued. You're coming, you know, you are there as you're starting a, you know, a brand new innovative industry. And yet the story you're telling is you're constantly coming up against sort of conservative views. Sure. Is that how we Sure. You, you know, you can show people, I guess Steve Jobs said it best, you know, something about you can't, you, you can't give people what they want. They don't know what they want. We have to show them what they want, you know? <laughs> and, and so one of the things, one of the things that happened with Europe is they all wanted, well, if Pong works, we play, you know, European hmm. football, we call soccer. Yeah. And yes. Once it, and so they defined a game that was uh, a soccer, the, not they, football, it was yes. Europe and all yeah. the different customers that we had. So we built it. I gave it to an engineer. I didn't do it. And uh, I was managing engineers at that point. And, uh, mm -hmm. uh, and, and it, was, it was a dog. It was horrible. Uh, really? <laughs> yeah, nobody would buy it. Even the guys who defined it wouldn't want it. So that's, that's so that, right. that ended that romance. <laughs> Sorry, I'm lo I'm loving that little aside because that means Atari made a soccer game. We'd call it football. Which yeah, is the correct name. Yeah, the yeah. correct name out. Let's be clear about that. But anyway, they made a soccer game, and then because you Dave Toyer then revisited that at the end of the seventies. Well, that's interesting. You tried that once. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Customer driven. Because right. <laughs> um, you, you end up producing all these different versions of, of Pong. Did it, you know, you, you seem to be interested in innovation. Did this all seem like a step backwards for Atari? It was just, to me, it was boring. You know, I, what I right. had to do, I had to hire engineers, teams, and, you know, to, to build these. And I had like two or three teams that were working on different products at the same time. And again, it's like being a, a kindergarten teacher. And, and, and so when Nolan, who kept demanding that I make a, a home game now, he wanted, ah, he knew, yeah. you know, and so I was delighted to quit engineering, <laughs> give it over to Steve ah. Bristow. And I started this division called the Consumer Division. And I remember, wow. yeah, there was a, okay. a yeah, anyway, uh, but I was number one in that area. And uh, uh, well, the, yeah. That was an area with uh, with legs, should we uh, it, say? It, it just seemed to go just, on more than my expectations, because my expectations were once again, and I'm sorry to say this, but I figured this was going to be a bad idea because I didn't know how to. It had to be on a custom chip. The whole trick yeah, was yeah. to put this on a custom chip. One single piece of silicon we could pay ten dollars for and get you know, to replace a hundred dollars worth of parts, and that's wonderful. Uh, but I didn't know how to do that. <laughs> and I told him that I didn't know. He wouldn't take no for an answer. And so wow. I had hired an engineer, uh, Harold Lee, uh, to design, that could design custom chips and do, he did video games. He designed regular arcade oh. games. Oh. Uh, but, but I figured what I wanted because people were stealing our stuff and we couldn't stop the bastards. So I figured I was going to design, we were going to design a small custom chip that would go inside our game that would be our chip and that the, the, the copiers couldn't get that chip and they couldn't copy the game. And that was the idea. Mm. And, uh, but it didn't, that didn't work because Harold said, look, you know, your technology is changing so fast that any chip, it takes six months to design a chip. 
uh, it will be obsolete by the time it's designed. So it's not going to work. But, but I think I can put Pong on a chip. And I'm going, wow, that's what Nolan wants. And that's what I want because I want to get out of coin-op engineering. Uh -huh. uh, and so that's what happened. And I gave it over to Steve. And uh, that was just after I'd hired Steve Jobs. St yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. Do you mean, sorry, do you, yeah. Do you, that, you handed Pong over to Steve Jobs. Are we, are we coming no, on no, to no, no, Breaker? No, 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 no. That's later. We're coming on to that. Yes, yeah. yes. I've got that. Um, so Home Pong is, of course, a, a huge success. This podcast focuses on coin-op games. Right. But we, we, we can't not ask you, you know, putting an arcade game on a chip into the home, just how difficult a task was that? Oh, well, again, like I thought it was, would be impossible. <laughs> okay. Right, and I would okay. wait till I finished, you know, and it was a failure. And I go to Noel and I say, see, I told you I couldn't do it. Well, <laughs> it was, and we had no funding, but <laughs> we had, Harold knew how to get, get time on the computer terminal needed to design the chips. Uh, and I, my wife at home in the evening would wire wrap what he did. I would debug it, give it back to him in that loop. And he was good enough that when we got the semiconductor company to prototype the chip, much to my surprise, the damn thing worked. And it was like, oh, shit. How annoying. Yeah, it was like a dog chasing a car. What do you do if you catch it? You know, we had no plans or any of that stuff. We had, you know, this was complete different market, different wow. everything. And, uh, yeah, so, uh, but it was fun because now we're at, you know, like, wow, we're going to be in the business coin up. <laughs> really, really, really were. But as I said, uh, let's stick to the, the arcade sure. uh, story. And around this time, Atari takes the somewhat unusual step of uh, creating its own competition. Please, ah. can you tell our listeners Brilliant. Just the yes. thinking behind key games? Brilliant. Again, Nolan. Uh, because it seemed odd for me at the time. Uh, uh, hmm. what happened, the distribution of coin operated equipment in America was basically falling along three different product lines, basically jukebox lines, William Seberg and Rockhole or something like that. And so the distributors would yeah. get one third of the Kuiper products that were out there. You had to buy from different distributors. But as a manufacturer, you could only sell to one third of the market. And this was bothering Nolan who had to increase this. So, you know, in America, there's consumer products, General Electric. They make mm -hmm. stoves and refrigerators and stuff like that yeah. they used to. Yeah. And they had another company called Hotpoint. Uh, that was the okay. same company, but it, yeah. it, it sold the same stuff, but under a different logo. And uh, that, that's what they did. And so Nolan said, well, I'm going to do that. And his neighbor was Joe Keenan, uh, who was ex of IBM and a very, very smart businessman uh, and a great guy, perfect for the job. And we set him up. That was a funny story because we set him up at Key Games, K-E-E -E Games. And, and uh, we gave him Steve Bristow. We gave him some of our engineers. And then, of course, to our to our wonderful customers we said those <laughs> bastards stole our game they stole our engineer and of course oh no really and they'd run right across town over to key games and try to buy them you know and uh that was fun that was fun you'd think because anybody could if they wanted to 
could have gone to the California Commissioner of Corporations and seen uh, yeah. that me and Nolan were on the board of directors of Key Games. <laughs> so, so that's the more you tell us is that you know part of Nolan's um, genius is the business bit. That's it, right. It's not about creating games. It's about that's right. how can we be, it's almost like business is a game. Yes. That's right. That. Exactly. And, it, and Nolan's propensity to invent stuff was really annoying me because he had this very short attention span and he'd change products all the time. Yeah. Right. That's how uh, breakout got done. <laughs> all right. Uh, well, yeah, it, with key games, you see, that was a way to get around this kind of exclusive distribution. Right. But of course they do stop producing their own their own games and indeed in 1974 the game tank comes out of of key games that's right now i think wasn't that the hit that let's be honest the company desperately needed at that point absolutely absolutely yep we sometimes get the impression that it's just atari you know often it's, it's the rise in the 70s and then the fall in the 80s but you were there then how close did Atari come to to really going out of business in sort of 73, before Tank kind of kicked in? Things got pretty dodgy, didn't they? Well, I'll give you an example. Uh, uh, it was so bad that at one point in the, in the afternoon at work, in our offices in Los Gatos, Nolan was in his office crying. Oh, God. And I go, huh? What's up? And he says, the company's going to go. We're going to die. Really? And really. And so we couldn't have the employees seeing this. So Pat Carnes, the sales guy for CoinOp, and I took Nolan, grabbed him, and took him out to a restaurant to have, you know, uh, coffee or something and calm down. And, uh, and the company was on its way to bankruptcy. Key Games was saying, great. <laughs> we got the ball. We'll run with it. And we said, oh, hell no, you're not doing that. Anyway, uh, uh, yeah, I don't know if you want to go into the whole story about why it was in that. It was a long, complicated story. And Nolan made a terrible mistake, uh, basically, and hired a bunch of uh, people to run the company, replacing yeah. all the executives in the company with B players that didn't know what they were doing. And uh, uh, yeah. just about come on, you company. can't you can't allude to this and not not tell us. So the company was obviously Pong was a huge success. Then these the games after that floundered a bit. Are you telling me that, that I mean, you said he got rid of Ted. He didn't get rid of you, did he, Al? Sort of. Yep. Uh, what happened, he brought in, uh, 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 he brought in a, a bunch of guys from Hewlett Packard that were, in my right. opinion, B players, which is a very dangerous right. thing. And he brought in a guy from Ampex, Lloyd Warman, who was a manager, not an engineer. And he had right. him run uh, engineering. And my mother was dying of cancer at the time. So hmm. I took the I took basically a brief sabbatical and let yeah. uh, sure go ahead, uh, Lloyd. You want to do it? Uh, uh, and that's that's what happened. But everything was going to pot. We lost our bank line. Our, I mean, it was just it was it. Yeah, it was a terrible thing. So so just say video game history could have been very different then. So it, what it, happened? It, it, Here's what saved it. Yeah. Uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, shit. Our international. <laughs> sales guy international because nolan had screwed sales up so bad that he finally found a guy who was great at this who really knew his stuff oh man oh I, I, oh dear anyway he he's because he had a super good deal 
making he was getting a, a, a percentage of all international sales as you would for a hmm. international sales manager and uh and, and he was sitting back at his home in Marin County uh cashing checks and he had a, a lady working there uh for him that uh, did all his work and and uh we got the Japan market we set up all the internet uh, everything was set up and all of a sudden when uh he got wind that the company was about ready to tank he saw that money going away he came back and he got with Nolan and he said, okay, let's straighten this out. And, and, uh, God, I can, on the tip of my tongue, he got, he fired all those HP guys, told me to come on back, be engineering <laughs> oh, and, wow. uh, set it back up again and think, and then merge key back with Atari. Ah, and that, right. uh, that's how Joe Keenan became the CEO of, uh, of Atari. And thank God, cause he was, you know, sane, Tons. conservative. Risk-taking businessman, and uh, how was it? Um, Shane Brakes? No, no, no. Shane Brakes was our international sales guy. Uh, uh, okay. No, later on, I suppose. No, he yeah. was just he's basically, Good. yeah. Okay. I'm sure it'll come to you. That yeah, but that's in, so the merger with Key Games, which again is often if you read, it's like oh, and then we decided to come back together. Oh, ha, ha, the joke's <laughs> over. The the joke's over. Look, we're the same company. You're actually saying. No, that that was almost at the point where Atari went bust. But thankfully, we had, you know, they got rid of some of these chances uh, and brought back, in, including you, back into the fold. Right. And then you had this game tank. I just wondered, having, you know, you helped develop. Well, no, 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 some... no, no, no. The, oh, tank, cool. the tank, we got tank and uh, and working with key games, we got tank was mm. done properly. Uh, yeah. the, the driving game. That, that ah, Grand Track. The Grand Track. Is it Grand that Track? That was the one yes. that really saved the company. And, ah. But unfortunately, <sighs> I'll try to make it as simple as possible. Uh, <laughs> Lloyd Warman, the VP of engineering at the time, somehow he liked Grass Valley guys because they were ex-Ampex. Larry Emmons right. liked Lloyd because he was an adult, <laughs> I suppose. Nice. And, yeah. and they decided, and there's always contention between manufacturing, engineering, research and engineering, and all that. And this is normal. And, yeah. and somehow they thought they could do a better job productizing me. They invented the driving game, no question about it. But right. they wanted to put it into production to lay the board out and all that other stuff. They did such a terrible right. job, it was unproducible. So uh, what I had to do when they came back, I had to go on the on the on the bench and redesign the game, relay the board out, and make it producible. And that's what I did. And indeed, the driving game eventually did hit, yeah. uh, save yeah. us. But it was a close call. And that's uh, fascinating. We, we 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 couldn't. Everybody hated us. The banks wouldn't give us money. Uh, even the company, the company that made our prototype Pong chip. Uh, mm -hmm. wouldn't build a production, wouldn't take a production right. run from us because they, they had heard about our financial trouble. And, That's uh, amazing. it was a weird, weird discussion. We went to AMD, Joe Keenan and I, by this time I had gotten a second source up, up in uh, a second company that could build the chip, oh, Centertech. Okay. So uh, they were happy to build as many as we wanted, but we felt an obligation to work with AMD who, or, uh, yeah, AM, mm -hmm. uh, AM, AMI, AMI was the company. Oh, see. To build yeah. the chip. 
and uh, they wouldn't take the order. It was amazing. It was the most bizarre meeting I'd ever seen with the marketing guy, the manufacturer, all the people at, at AMD, AMI uh, wanted to do it, but the VP of finance wouldn't let them do it. So we said to you, we said to them, you tell us how many you want and you can have as many as you want. No problem. And they gave us some teeny ass number and we went over to, uh, Center tech and ordered a million parts, you know, and, and at that point, that's too bad. That company lost some money on that one. I, I bet that, that was the, the, the pong chip for the home console. I, that I was a pong chip, but I, it was I'm affected. Sure. It was affected by our failure in uh, the arcade business. Yeah, yeah. In the arcade business. Yeah. So I just want how, let's just, I'd finish this bit up is that we've just talked about how close Atari got to the edge, but then you have a great success with, with the uh, grand track, the driving game, which of course spawns a, a series, you know, Indy 800. Sure. And, there's a lot of games and the sprint series and then tank, of course, you know, it, that not only is a big hit, you have eight player tank. There's lots of spin-offs. Something changed. So suddenly, these innovative games like Grand Tra and Tank have reinvigorated the industry. How can you put your finger on what what happened? So suddenly now, Atari are out of the woods. Well, I think part of it was we were building an organization, and we had okay. and, and and I tried to hire good people, and I think I did hire good people, and so our ability, you know. Uh, again, as a young engineer, all of a sudden I'm managing people. It's a very uncomfortable feeling to have people working for you that are far senior and far smarter than you. Uh, and, and, but I'd gotten over that. I got used to that. And I liked hiring smart people. If I could take credit for their work and didn't have to do anything, that was the way to do it, you know? Um, Al, we just want to close off the um, coin-up part of our uh, discussion. Um, with his relatively recent passing, a story that has, that has sort of come out more more frequently in recent years is the fact that you hired Steve Jobs in 1973, which you alluded to briefly earlier. Mm -hmm. Can you can you tell us a bit about him back then and and and, and how he came about to walking through the the hallowed halls of Atari back in 1973. Hmm. Well, uh, you know, I guess I'm hiring people and we had, now we had a, a personnel lady at the company and all that. And I, I, I put a request out for a tech. I needed a technician. Typically a, a team would be an engineer and a tech, maybe two engineers and a, and a tech. And the tech hmm. would take the schematic that was designed by the engineers and wire wrap it and make a prototype out of it. Right. And, mm -hmm. and that was a fairly low rung in the tone of Paul. Anyway, so one day, uh, uh, God, I forget her name, our personnel lady, uh, Penny Chap, Penny Chapler, our go. personnel lady comes in and says, I got a guy. He says, I know you like to hire. See, we were in Los Gatos, which is near the mountains and a lot of great engineers like to live up in the mountains. And we were the first fun place to come to do engineering. And you left the mountains. So I get a lot of people just showing up. And then some of these people were great. So I, and so she said, you want to see these people, but this, I got this young kid. I said, bring them in. I got time. And so she brings them in and uh, it's this 18 year old or 17 year old. I'm not quite sure how old he was, but he was young, hippie. And, uh, but I've coming from Berkeley. I wasn't put off by that. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, and I said, and he, he, I said, what college did you go to? He, he, he said, Reed. I said, is that an engineering school? I said, no, it's a liberal arts college. And going, okay, what's my motivation here? You know, well, I got this friend that works over at Hewlett Packard. 
Steve Wozniak. And I go, that's not doing me any good. Uh, you know, but look, he was cheap. Uh, he was enthusiastic. He just had a fire in his gut. You know what I mean? And I don't care right. if you're hiring for a janitor, if there's that passion for this stuff, mm. that's half the battle. That combined with the fact that he was there and he was cheap and he could do tech work, that's how he got hired. Okay. He wasn't appreciated and, by the other engineers that much. He, okay. he didn't blend in that well. And he, he was asked, as I understand it, he was asked by Nolan, without your knowledge, to design what would ultimately, obviously, become breakout. And uh -huh. and that that's quite the tale as well, is it not? Yeah, yeah. See, again, Nolan had this very short attention span. So he would wander into engineering when he was bored, and he'd examine, he'd do a review of all the projects going on. There'd be two or three different teams going on, and and he'd look at them and and he'd change them. He'd get a better idea, and that was all well and good. But now we've just reset the clock. You know, and I had to feed a production line. They're production, you know what I mean? These video games right. had a short life in the market. And uh, so this was really upsetting me. I could not kick Nolan out of engineering, but I did have a pager set up that I'd be called the minute he walked into engineering. And so I'd come over and stand behind him and set things back on course. And Nolan knew at some level in his heart that I was doing the right thing, but he hmm. couldn't, he just had this burning gut of this new ideas, you know, and he wanted to see them mm -hmm. out. And so he went and cornered Steve Jobs. He didn't know that Steve was not an engineer. The way Steve would talk, he'd bragging about, you know, how dumb everybody else was. No one assumed he must be an engineer. So he assigns him this task and he gives him this weird bonus, which really would never have done. I mean, why would you want to give the youngest guy in your organization a bonus, a piece, you know, for doing this? Uh, it wouldn't play with anybody else. But anyway, he did, uh, and I didn't know about it. And, uh, uh, you know, one day I come into work, and uh, there is a finished prototype. Normally, it would take like three months to, you know, working on a game to get it out there. I walk into work one morning, and there it is. Steve Jobs says, hey, I did this. Look at this. And I go, what? There's a breakout, a working breakout. And uh, and he says, I did this. And I go, bullshit, you didn't do this. You know, well, it was his buddy Waz. Waz was coming by every night after work at Hewlett Packard because he'd play arcade games. We were, we were building. We were burning him in in the back. And he'd go mm -hmm. play them for free. And that's what he wanted to do. So he was always around it. Waz is a fascinating guy. <laughs> and uh, yeah. we got along real well. And sure, he can say, here's a weird. He was not an employee of Atari in any respect. But he had free reign to come in and, you know, we were loose. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, uh, the game, Nolan had given, uh, basically, he'd said, I'll give you a bonus, $1,000 a chip for every chip less than 50 that you use to make this game. Knowing that Pong took 75 chips my design, how could, hell could anybody design Breakout with all these paddles less than 70 ICs, less than 50. Well, Waz did it in about 10 days with 20 some odd chips. Wow. <laughs> Waz is a savant. I mean, and I looked at the schematic and I says, I can't understand this. This makes no sense. Right. And nor could our techs, they had to build the board. So it was basically unbuildable. It had parts in it. No one did not say you had to be able to buy the parts. 
So some of the parts were from Hewlett Packard that you could not buy. Yeah, it was that kind of stuff. <laughs> but it worked. It, it satisfied the rules. And Nolan, being a game player, paid him the thousand dollars a bonus or thousand dollar chip bonus. Which, of course, Steve lied to Waz and told him it was a hundred dollar a chip bonus, which was soon. Well, not soon, but a year later, found out. So Jobs basically freelanced was to to do the dirty work. Exactly. For him, but, exactly. Uh, basically bro- brokered the deal with Nolan. That's, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And Nolan, it was, it was, the whole thing was crazy. And I eventually had to give the breakout game to a normal human engineer. And he redesigned it with 90 chips. <laughs> and it was a hit game, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Fascinating. So, um, around this time, sort of mid, mid to late seventies, clearly there was a lot going on. You know, things were getting a bit more, dare I say it, professional at Atari or, or yeah. shall we say, or organized. Yeah. Um, and, and your role was VP of engineering working. Well, actually, uh, technically, technically my business card said vice president of R and D. Uh, okay. but I was in fact the VP of engineering. Okay. And, and, um, you were working alongside some great people. Um, uh, Dennis Coble, for one, who's, um, previous guest on this podcast. Sure. Um, oh, yeah. The Mike Albars, etc. Yeah. You mentioned Nolan's habit of sort of coming in and sort of throwing a grenade into the room. I, I wonder if, it, were you kind of banging heads with Nolan at this point? And, and was it sort of going beyond the, the, the sort of, you know, friendly, what we would call banter here in the UK. Oh uh, it- yeah, I, I, I was, I was banging heads with, with Nolan. I mean, he was wanting me to do the impossible, which I didn't really want to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So presumably, a large part of your role was 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 kind of managing upwards to Nolan, as well as managing, you know, your a team of engineers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, fortunately, once Joe Keenan got on board, we had adult supervision, so that made it a little bit easier. <laughs> okay, and um. A lot has a lot has been uh, written and discussed about the eventual Warner buyout in '76. Of course, mm-hmm. um, what's your what's your sort of you know uh, uh, take on that? Al, I mean, with hindsight, do you think it was the right thing to do given given where Atari were at the time? Did, did you have any say in the process? No, I didn't. That was really Joe and Nolan. Uh, okay. But it it was the right thing to do. Nolan has said that he wishes he didn't. You know, if we had managed to stay alive and we could have eventually gone public and made a lot more money for ourselves, but that really wasn't in the offing. You know, it, it mm-hmm. just wasn't, it wasn't there. We, we, and, and since the other problem was we had the coin, the, the home game business selling those machines was a Christmas right. business. So the way that works is you have to guess like in March or May or June, you got to guess how many you're going to sell in the Christmas and you have to order those parts ahead of time. And you either guess too many or not enough. Okay. You're not going to guess the right number and you have to build them and you have to pay for that. So there's a huge amount of capital involved in, in getting those parts. And that was different than the coin op experience, you know? Got it. So we had to get more money. We had to, we tried, we'd already talked to a venture capitalist and we had him, uh, who helped us get out of our first problem with Don Valentine. Uh, and uh, 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 But with the Sears stuff, we we eventually got Sequoia, a uh, venture capital firm, and uh, mm-hmm. Don Valentine. 
Don Valentine's one of the old venture capitalists. Some said he actually financed Noah's Ark. <laughs> and uh, But he's a very conservative type of guy. You'd think almost way too conservative, but he did very risky things and he was very smart. And, uh, and he basically uh, uh, got us funded over our first hump. And then he actually helped in. We tried to get the company sold. We looked at Quaker. We went to, we actually had a prospectus. We were trying to go public. And, uh, I actually had a, that prospectus. I gave it to Stanford. Uh, so they have that, uh, that market failed. So we had to, we had to sell it. We had to get the cash somehow. And Warner seemed like the best option of all because they understood the hit business. It's very important. Most big products in America get put out and they last forever. And uh, you don't have to do new stuff. Well, the record business was hit record business was more similar to uh, uh, the coin op, the, the, uh, the video game business. Mm. And so that that sort of worked out for a while. Al, this is absolutely amazing. It's so wonderful to hear your anecdotes. It truly is. Um, our podcast is focused primarily um, obviously on arcade games, but it would be, it would be rude not to ask you, Al, about your role in creating the all conquering Atari VCS and the success of home. Sorry. After the six, I'm going to take that from the top. After the, after the six, Jesus fucking <laughs> Christ. I'm going to go home. <laughs> after the success of home pong, was it a natural progression to produce a cartridge based consumer system? Uh, yes and no. Uh, because, okay. because it was obvious. The problem was when all the games, all new consumer games required a new custom chip for each game. And that was yeah. expensive and time consuming and slow. Mm -hmm. And it was obvious. And microprocessors had just come out to the point where they were good enough to maybe do something in this area. So the configuration with a, uh, a cartridge or ROM and a cartridge and a microprocessor so you could play different games on a base unit was somewhat obvious. Uh, uh, and Fairchild uh, did indeed come out with the first cartridge-based thing. The problem they yes. had was they had to use their own microprocessor, their Fairchild F or whatever, and it was the dog. Uh -huh. So that, that thing failed. And the other thing that people don't realize was that we had this lawsuit from Magnavox for stealing their patent. Uh -huh. And and the way that got that got settled was we had a paid up license, but for one year, and that agreement was signed a week before the Consumer Electronics Show in '76, mm -hmm. and they mm -hmm. had somehow Magnavox had the rights to build or take any product that we released for one calendar year from the date of signing that agreement, which ended a week before the Consumer Electronics Show in 77. Okay. So we couldn't, it's the only time we had to keep a secret. So we had time to develop the, the game with the 6502 microprocessor yes. and released it as a big surprise at the 77 Consumer Electronics Show, which was quite an event. Sure. Yeah, fascinating. Was it hard convincing people, by which we mean people inside Atari, of course, but also retailers who would be selling the console, that this model of producing a machine and then selling separate cartridges for it for years to come was going to work? Oh, there was no problem with that. That was that was easy, yeah. Fair enough. Okay, and, and the VCS launched in 77 and did well. 
but didn't really take off until Space Invaders arrived in cartridge form in 1980. So, yeah. so in yeah. those intervening years, do you, do you think maybe Atari had mis- miscalculated the demand for a cartridge-based system at that's the time? A, or that's what a was very your... interesting question because because uh, uh, Warner was more traditional company and they, they were going to, uh, uh, you know, they assumed it would go forever. Atari's history was we would design a new game every couple of years, you know. So yes, if the machine didn't yes, work, yes. our solution was to design another game and release it and go on. Warner said no. There were big fights about this with with right. the whole team and the new guys. And uh, they said no. And uh, they insisted on going ahead with it. And they were right. They poured money into advertising and they were right. Yeah, sure, sure. So you, you, you were fleet of foot as a company, but, um, uh, with this particular project, they, um, they held the line and, and it, and it proved to be fruitful. Yes. Yeah. But unfortunately, that also produced the end of Atari because they weren't going to yes. really, they didn't, they, after the VCS, Atari released no new products ever. And they, and they got yes. to over $2 billion in sales on that old product. And, uh, but when it, when it died, it, I was telling Ray Kassar, you know, that in this business, if yeah. you don't obsolete your own product, somebody else will. And he just didn't yeah. believe that till too late. Right. Right. I guess that's for lifespan. Um, it was during this time that you explored the possibility of creating a holographic handheld game system, right? And we, we talked to our last guest, Roger Hexer about this, but can we ask you, Al, um, do you do you think the market was ready for something like that? Well, never know. I think it was. Uh, hmm. You know, that all came about uh, 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 for a couple of reasons. One, at Atari, we could not keep a secret. <laughs> so what we would do <laughs> okay. yeah. was we would put out lies, disinformation. And so one, one, one of our popular lies was <laughs> that we would uh, do a holographic game, hoping that our competition would get ahead of us and try to make a game out of a hologram. And uh, it was just bullshit. Uh, at that point, though, <laughs> since here I am. Hang on, hang on. You were hoping they get bogged down yeah, trying to do it while money. you were actually doing it, right? Well, no, I, I wasn't. This, But not until the end when Ray Kassar, I couldn't work for that guy. So I went back into engineering, <laughs> basically. Quit my role as any of that management stuff and pulled a very good team together and figured, let's do some holography. Let's see if we could do something. It's absolutely right. the wrong way to do a product. Let's start with right. an obscure technology that's patented all over the place, and let's see if we can make a game out of that, as opposed to saying, I want a game that does this or that. What technology could we use? You know what I mean? It was completely well, bass-ackwards. Okay, well, bass <laughs> um so, I mean, speaking about Ray Kazar then, um, um, I mean, you, you, you got this system working right, and this is probably a little reductive, but you, you had the game all ready to go, and, and then it was the aforementioned Ray Kazar who pulled the plug, right? Yeah, yeah. Marketing, uh, imagine you're a marketing guy at Atari, and we're doing $2 billion yeah. in sales on cartridges, and your main job was to answer the phone and say, I'm sorry, we're sold out, and hang up. They didn't do anything. And along comes yeah. Alcorn with a new product, that they have to go and sell and talk to customers about. Would you want to do that? <laughs> you can just yeah. sit back and yeah, smoke yeah, cigars yeah, yeah, yeah. and cash check. Yeah. <laughs> so that they, they didn't want to do it. So me and the team, uh, engineering team, went to the uh, uh, consumer show and the toy fair and 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 sold the thing. We had to run the booth. Marketing wouldn't help us. It was crazy. 
and wow. and everything they they tried to stop me every possible way. For example, manufacturing said we're too busy to build this product, and I said put that in writing. So they did, yeah. And then I said, okay, I found a vendor in Texas that will build it better and cheaper than you. So that's fine. Yeah. Go away. Oh no, 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 no. We want to build it now. Uh, marketing said the business plan. They don't make any money the first year, so we can't do that. And even though they were making billions. And so I said, okay, here's plan B. Here's one that showed losing even more money. And they said, you're nuts. Get out of here. I said, okay, I got on the phone, called manufacturing. I said, shut the VCS line down because these idiots don't want to build it. And that, that history, that accounting, that was the actual history of the first uh, VCS. It didn't make money, you know, that much money. Right. Anyway, I got past all those things. And finally, at the end, Ray Kassar just looks me in the eye at a, at a little staff meeting and purses his lips and says, no, we're not building it. And there was no other excuse. Right. Just, no, we're not going to build it. So, okay. And that they didn't need me anymore. And that's when I quit. So you were tiptoeing through the now haunted house of Atari and Ray Kassar was pulling the rug in every single room, right? That's right. Nothing, <laughs> nothing like got it. released. Yeah. Yeah. And j just how angry were you? Uh, may I ask out well, this no, decision, I, I, or, or by, was it a fair company? By it this was. Point? I, I pretty much could see it coming. The other engineers were telling me, "You're not going to get. they will never release anything like this." So I'm going to try. Yeah, I would give it my best efforts, and when I realized I couldn't do it, then there was no point in me staying there any longer. Yeah, right. Okay, so this was a key a key reason why you left. Right, right. Presumably, right. Yeah. Okay. Do you do you regret? Any, any uh, leaving the company? Oh. No, it was a riot. I've, uh, I, you know, sure. Atari gave me uh, entree to work at any company I wanted. Uh, it was incredible. I got to work, at, went to work at Apple uh, and work with some of the finest computer scientists in the world. I, you know, I had a, a great career, started a bunch of companies, and a lot of that was because of my success at Atari. Uh, right, yeah. Sure. I, I mean, I was going to ask you, you see, so you went on to a long and diverse career in many tech companies, right. as you say, including a spell at Apple, where you helped develop the MPEG format and, and QuickTime, of course. Yeah. Um, and then you collaborated with Nolan, um, on, on a fascinating project based around the down, uh, based around downloading games onto static RAM cartridges. Oh, yeah, yeah, Kuma. If yeah, I'm not yeah, mistaken. Yeah. Tell us Got about there that. just in time for the, uh, market to collapse. <laughs> okay. Tell, tell, tell us about that, though. What's, what was that all about? Well, at the time, uh, retailers were having trouble with cartridges. They didn't know what, what was going to be good or what was going to be bad. And by this time, other companies had now figured out how to copy cartridges, and there were some terrible cartridges mm. out there. So this was meant, uh, the, the big issue was the SKUs, stock-keeping units. You know, you had to keep like 50 or 100 different kind of cartridges, and only only 10 would really be popular, and you didn't know which ones they were. And so, the, so our solution was, hey, why don't we build a kiosk, kind of like an arcade video game, that uh, that you put your – we made cartridges with static RAM in them, and you could download a program for a new game into that cartridge mm -hmm. for a fraction mm -hmm. of the price of buying a new cartridge. And, uh, uh, and we built this machine, took it to, this, took it to uh, CES, had, had Sears was pretty positive about putting them in. And uh, then the market went, and that was the end of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, well if nothing else, if, if I've learned nothing else from this interview, I've learned what the SKU in a serial number um, stands for now. So a little bit minutiae there. Um, you know, to many, Al, you'll always be known as the man who invented Pong. I mean, are you, I'm, presumably you're happy with that mantle. Are you, or are you concerned that people reading the epitaph 
on your gravestone might get the wrong idea and think you had something to do with bad smells or something like that. <laughs> no, uh, no, I'm, I'm happy with, I mean, Jesus Christ, if you could be responsible for starting an industry. You can't have Jesus Christ on okay. there, just LL okay. Cool. All right. <laughs> All right. No, I mean, anybody that, you know, could be responsible for starting an industry that seems to be doing pretty well at this point. Indeed. You know, uh, uh, I'm not going to, no, I, I'm proud of that. Uh, but I'm also personally proud of some of the technical achievements that I did afterwards, you know, so it was, a, it's been a, a very interesting career for me. I know. I mean, that's amazing. I, I know that you did want avoid missing ball for high score on your t- on your on your gravestone. So right. maybe we'll maybe we'll settle yeah. for that. <laughs> Excellent, amazing. Al, thank you so much. Sure. That this has been. I think this this marks the end of the the interview. And so I'll go first in 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 saying my thanks. Um, it's been it's been absolutely wonderful. I mean, you truly are the. If not the father, then maybe the second son of video. You know, of of arcade video games may i say and it's been wonderful thank you so much for your time thank well, you thank you for wanting to listen to these old stories that it's, it's fun to oh please <laughs> it's uh it's a pleasure I, I i and i say that i've said this before but uh, oftentimes when i'm listening to our guests speak i kind of forget we're actually interviewing people and it's like i'm listening to somebody else's podcast so that's kind of a little bit of meta um <laughs> and, and self-congratulations I, I hope you've not relied on someone else recording this podcast <laughs> no that's all good we're, we, we, are good. we are recording i wanted to yeah. say al not only is it a, a pleasure hearing all these tales you still after all these years talk with such enthusiasm and passion about the thing you started now i do need to ask you one thing before we let you go is that we have a bit of an abiding interest i say we i mean me is that about who has been in nolan bushnell's hot tub and many of our previous guests (laughs) have alluded to it denied it oh yeah i am pretty sure that you have been in that Hot okay, first off, let me, no let me, is that true? Let me make, let me make a point. I, the, the stories keep getting better. And the last story I heard <laughs> this was that Nolan had a hot tub in his office, which was never true. Uh, he did have a beer tapper, a beer, beer cake. Yeah, nice. But, That's but good. no, but he, but yes, one, there were several. I mean, back then everybody was in hot tubs at those days in the seventies <laughs> and especially yeah, in California. It's the seventies. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and maybe not Nixon, but, but uh <laughs> what the, the most famous one was when Nolan and Joe came back from their trip to New York to talk with mm-hmm. Warner and Nolan held an impromptu staff meeting one day in his hot tub at his home in Los Gatos and whereupon he told us that Warner had just basically offered us 30 million bucks for the company, a company that I thought was going to go under at any minute. And I start doing the arithmetic, you know, that Nolan had given me 10% of the stock in the company, (laughs) which I thought was worthless. And all of a sudden I'm starting to multiply, you know, $30 million by 10% and going, Hey, that's not bad. (laughs) And 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 everybody was in the hot tub except for the attorney, which wouldn't, he wouldn't get it. Wouldn't they do that? (laughs) And so we were taking memos and Nolan was dropping them in the water. I mean, it was, it was crazy time. Yeah. It was Yeah, I've done the math that ten percent of thirty million. That is, I hope you could have had a hot tub full of champagne. (laughs) I think with that. So, what a lovely image! Yeah, lovely image. Life's been good. (laughs) Yeah, Um, and and thanks from me too, um, Howard. What what struck me after listening to you is um, 
kind of you know sliding doors right i mean had had you taken the advice of your peers at ampex and thought yeah you know that all sounds like a load of fun but actually you know i'm, right. I'm just going to stick it out right. here and take take my salary we certainly wouldn't be sitting here talking to you now about your achievements right. no, at ampex or, or, that's for or, sure or if i didn't hire steve jobs when i did right yeah, very true. So, I, yeah, you, you um, are, 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 you know, clearly the uh, catalyst for many ground zero events in the history of video gaming. But it wasn't by some grand, it wasn't by some grand scheme that I had come up with. It was just, you know, making of course. making decisions on the fly and getting lucky. Indeed, which is arguably a life lesson for us all. Well, um, yeah, li- <laughs> life's what thank happens you. when you're busy making other plans. Yep. Yep. Yeah, indeed, yeah. <laughs> uh, so thank you very much, Alex. My pleasure. It's, um, our, our our pleasure to have you have you on the show. Thank you. Okay. You've been listening to the Ted Dabney Experience podcast with me, Richard May, Retro Gamer Magazine's Paul Drury, and arcade blogger Tony Temple. The show was produced and edited by myself, with a bespoke score and sound suite by Ghost of Wood. We were just just saying, just off the record, um, Al. Just um, I, you know, this obviously is just a kind of a, a sort of chapter of your life, and you've told this story a hundred times. I'm I, I'm sure, but to be sitting here, sort of talking, and sort of thinking, actually, we're we're kind of putting ourselves right into ground zero of video gaming. It's it's where it all started. Quite something, really. I'm del- I'm delighted because I can assure you, my wife, who has been with me the whole time, does not <laughs> wish to hear this stuff again. <laughs> <laughs> I will send her the link when it goes live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She can listen to it in the car. Yeah, yeah.